Because of what I've been doing forever, I interact with a lot of discouraged people. No one ever comes to me struggling with too much joy. No, it's usually the the opposite of that. People are discouraged. They are hurting. They're frustrated. They're going through a difficult time. They have a problem in their life. They have a relational challenge that is in front of them. And and sometimes they just plop down in the middle of discouragement. And because of that, I want to do this podcast on that subject of discouragement. The title of it is, When You Are Discouraged, You Need Your Soul Restored. Thank you for joining me for the podcast. I am Rick Thomas, and you're listening to Your Daily Drive. You're welcome to read this podcast if you wish. Just look for that title, When You Are Discouraged, Your when you are discouraged, you need your soul restored. And so let me ask the question, have you ever been discouraged? Well, that's a silly question, and I realize that. You are human, and you have battled discouragement. Finite people living in an uncontrollable, infinite world creates a formula that leads to discouragement. And throw sin into the mix, and discouragement is a guarantee I suppose we should not be surprised that things go wrong. Fallen people, in a fallen world, what do you expect? And the sin element, which is what fallenness implies, it sends everything in our world sideways. And the result is that we can become disappointed, discouraged. And sometimes when left unchecked, we can drift into depression. This potential for all of us? is why David said in Psalm 23 that he restores my soul. And it's why I titled the podcast, When You Are Discouraged, You Need Your Soul Restored. Our soul needs restoration. And so let me ask, when was the last time you were discouraged? Play the video back. Think about a moment. Maybe you're in it right now. Maybe this is your condition. This is your day, your week. I know some would testify that this has just been my life. But when was the last time you were discouraged? And maybe more importantly, a more important question is, do you know how to experience soul restoration? What I want to do in this podcast is it's not just present the problem. I want to do that. I will do that. But what I want to do is also to give you a solution because I know that that many people do not know how to experience soul restoration. And so I appeal to you to make this verse your meditation today. Psalm 23, verse 3, David said this, He restores my soul. The second sentence, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Discouragement is never the first step in an adverse situation. You just, you just don't start with discouragement. Discouragement is the aftermath of a disappointing or unchanging problem or relationship. Discouragement is the accumulative effect of other things that have gone wrong. For example, an individual who struggles with guilt will quickly succumb to the temptation of discouragement. And so in this case, guilt leads to discouragement. And so discouragement is the accumulative effect of other things that have gone wrong and have been in play for a while. There are other conditions besides guilt. 
that lead to the discouraged soul, things like shame, ongoing battles with shame or jealousy or self-pity. Maybe you have unmet desires in a relationship. Someone is not meeting your expectations, and the accumulative effect of unmet desires will lead to discouragement. And then, of course, there is fear. If any of these things are part of your life, in an ongoing way, you will be fast-tracking to discouragement. Now, this last one, fear, is usually considered a common discouragement trap. In fact, if you read the next verse, Psalm 23, 4, David said this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Fear is a big deal in all of our lives. And if you want to get to the bottom of discouragement, well, actually, the bottom of discouragement is not fear. Fear is just one of the more common things that we succumb to. If you were to stack things up vertically, at the top you would have discouragement. And then underneath discouragement you would have fear. And then underneath fear, at the bottom of it all, the most significant culprit is the unbelieving heart. Unbelief is at the bottom of it all. That is the source of all discouragement. If you began with an unbelieving heart, you will eventually lead or land in discouragement. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about unbelief as it pertains to salvation, but belief as it relates to a believer's sanctification. Now, maybe you are not a Christian. Maybe you're not saved. And so your starting point is an unbelieving heart. You're not trusting God for your salvation well, you will have ongoing battles with discouragement because you're always starting with an unbelieving heart. But maybe you have been regenerated. You are saved, but you still struggle with this idea of discouragement. And so the issue is still unbelief, even though you are eternally secure. While the most often repeated imperative in the Bible is fear not, the solution for the imperative is belief. Trusting God is the issue, but there is a problem with discouragement. The problem is, is that it can lead people into the trap of self-reliance as the solution to despair. The solution is belief, not self-reliance. Typically, this snare of self-reliance runs along these lines, quote, I have done something that has led to my discouragement. Therefore, I need to do something to work my way out of it. That is self-reliance. I am saying that self-reliance is not the answer. You may have worked yourself into it, but working yourself out of it is not the way of the gospel. You want to rely on God. This temptation of working yourself out of problems is problematic with the self-help books the self-help gurus always have a book or a principle or a truth that will lead a person to a better life, so they guarantee. It used to be a search for significance. That was a popular book many years ago. Then it evolved into seven habits for highly effective people, and then later it became a purpose-driven life. And there can be a fraction of truth in all of these principle-driven ideas, but there is just enough untruth to throw you off the scent of the gospel. For it, from a God-centered perspective, discouragement is God's mercy to you 
Think about it this way. When you become discouraged, rather than looking at it as a problem that you must resolve, what about if you see discouragement as a mercy from God that leads you toward less reliance on yourself and greater reliance on God? Paul learned this lesson in Corinthians. He said in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, listen to this. And what I want you to hear is how discouragement was a mercy from God that instructed Paul on a better way to live his life. He said this in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. He said, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul was despairing. He was discouraged. In fact, he went on to say, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But here's the divine conjunction. But that, those problems that we had, we were utterly burdened beyond our strength. We despaired of life. We felt like we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. If your despair leads you toward principles, then you're not learning the primary purpose of your discouragement. Twelve steps and seven habits sound nice from a man-centered perspective. It makes sense, but in the long run, they will not adequately serve you. Many folks who have tried the principle-driven approach know this. Discouragement is not a call to work harder, but to rely more on God. Thus, the first point in the recovery process for the discouraged soul is learning how to rely on God, who restores the soul. There's a reason David began his great psalm with the accent mark on belief, Verse number one, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. David knows that he is not to try harder, but to rely more upon his shepherd. The point of emphasis is on work. No doubt about that. David is emphasizing work, but the work is what the Lord does, not what we are to do. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you hear the peace and the rest? Do you hear that, that God is an omnicompetent God? He's an omnicompetent shepherd. But David is saying, if you don't believe what I am telling you, then let me lay it out for you. And so I want to share with you verses 2 through 5. Verse 1 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 2 says, he makes me lie down. That's the work of the shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. Verse 3, he says, he restores my soul and he leads me in paths of righteousness. Verse 4, he is with me and he will comfort me. Verse 5, he prepares a table, he anoints my head with oil. David says there is a reason, the reasons are here in verses 2 through 5, of why he believes what he says in verse number 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There is so much work that God will do, 
if we learn the lesson of not relying on ourselves to get ourselves out of our problems. And so after David convinces you about the source of his faith, he concludes his psalm of belief in verse 6, where he tells you how it's going to end for the believing sheep. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I, I will d- dwell in the house of the Lord forever. His present tense belief in God has an eschatological reality to it. The Lord is worthy of your trust now and always. David is appealing to you to believe in God. Belief is the cure for the discouraged soul, not more self-effort. If the good shepherd has saved you from darkness and death, you have bragging rights. And that is exactly what David is doing here. You see, David, who is not David, he is a sheep. The story here is about a sheep, and the sheep is standing in the the corral or in a pasture, and the sheep is looking over yonder somewhere, and he sees his shepherd standing there. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then he goes into this this brief bragathon of what his shepherd does. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He is with me. He will comfort me. He prepares a table for me. He anoints my head with oil. The heart of the shepherd-centered sheep is gratitude. The sheep can't stop talking about all the good shepherd gives him. Perhaps you want to self-assess at this point, and maybe this would be a good question for you. How does your belief impact your gratitude? David believed, and he was grateful. You must trust. You must believe. These are synonyms. You must have confidence in someone more fabulous than you are. Your mind should not be wrapped up in what you want or what you don't have, but in who you are because of Christ. For example, if you are discouraged because of a broken relationship, you are only as strong as that relationship. Thus, if the relationship is in good standing, you feel good. This problem is what I mean about the snare of self-effort and self-reliance. God wants you to be stronger than the weakest point of your relationship. He wants you to have more than a dependency on other people. And while a broken relationship is discouraging for any person, it should not be what defines you or what weakens you. What God offers through Christ is higher than what our self-effort can construct, can control, or even lose. And so then the question is, so we should do nothing? We should not put forth any effort because I don't want to fall into the trap of self-reliance? No, I'm not saying that. This God-centered worldview is not a call to passivity or a call to let go and let God. We are called to do something, but that something is not self-reliance. 
That something is to trust God in all ways obediently. Let me illustrate. The man who just lost his wife through separation is tempted to start doing a lot of things to offset all the bad things he had been doing while they were together. If he does this, he may get his wife back. But this desperate husband will build their reborn relationship on his self-effort. The things that he did to win his wife back, that won't work. The sad part about this kind of rebuild in a relationship is that he will not be able to sustain all of that work consistently. He'll not be able to do all those things day in and day out once he gets her back. He's going to revert to what he was before. It was just a ploy. He will not do that forever. That is his self-effort to gain something, and then once he gains it again, he will stop. But, But also... There will be a temptation for his wife to grade his performance while responding positively or negatively to his effort. And so if he doesn't meet my expectations today, I will grade him accordingly. And so he will have to double down and work harder to make sure that he's always winning her affection. Do you see? Do you hear how man-centered that is, how self-reliant that is, and how destructive that will be inevitably It's like the boy who dates the girl, wins the girl, and then reverts to who he was after he gets the girl. This type of fakery is the way of the world. It's what the self-help gurus teach us. Here are the things that you need to do. In time, the girl leaves him for someone who can perform better. The first order of business for the man with the wife who just left him, or the boy who just lost his girlfriend, is for both of them to turn to God in complete, unabated trust, regardless of where their relationship goes. Let me give you another illustration. Biff had been struggling with a secret porn addiction for most of his life. He finally told Mabel, his wife, she left him. Did he do wrong to tell her? No, he did not. What he did is he decided to stop relying on himself and began trusting the one who raises the dead, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. When he relied on himself, guess what happened? He kept secrets. He fought a private battle. He failed consistently. He lived in a low state of frustration and discouragement, which led to more porn. This sinful linkage is always the way of self-effort. And so Biff decided he was going to trust someone more significant, more fabulous than he was. The Lord was calling him to a God-centered obedience that was not Biff's way of doing things. You probably are familiar with the Verse of Scripture in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Self-effort, self-reliance is always the way of death. Trusting God is our solution. But see, there's a problem with trusting God. The biggest challenge in relying on the Lord who raises the dead is that He's not going to tell you how it is going to go for you as you trust Him. He's just calling you to trust. 
before, Biff was relying on himself, and all of his efforts were designed to bring about an anticipated outcome. Biff's faith was in himself, and it was predetermined as to what the outcome would be if he did it a certain way. The challenge of trusting God is that you can trust God, but you might not get your preferred result. Isn't that the bummer with the way of faith in God? You see, the Lord knows that if he told you how it would turn out, your faith would not be in him, but your faith would be in the known results that he spelled out to you. The self-reliant man will determine what he wants and how he's going to get what he wants, which is, which is how Biff has always operated. The man earlier that I described whose wife left him, he decided what he wanted. He wanted his wife back. He decided what he would do to get her back. Of course, he couldn't sustain that, and so it just led to more death. And so in this case of Biff determining what he was going to get, when he did not get the desired outcome, he redoubled his efforts. And after he battled with the discouragement that came through his failures, a man-centered way will try and try again because that is all he knows. Or maybe he knows that he should trust the Lord, but he is afraid to do so. God's way is different. The Lord is calling you to rely on him, and he will not tell you how it will end for you or what you will get for your God-centered, God-relying faith. Does this sound foolish to you? Of course it does. The more worldly or sinful your heart is, the more foolish trusting God will sound to you, especially when trusting God means you will not know the outcome and you may not get what you want. Listen carefully to these two passages from 1 Corinthians 18 and 19, first of all, and then I'll read 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23. Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly, foolish to those who are perishing, but not to us who are being saved. It is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the self-reliant person who thinks he knows how to orchestrate all things. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That's 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 19. Now here's 22 and 23. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly, foolishness to the Gentiles. Paul, the writer to the Corinthians, was trying to get the Corinthians to understand that going back to the rules would not save or sustain them. Going back to man-centered methods and traditions, he wanted them to have what he had because he had been affected by the gospel. Paul was not going back to the old ways, to the old rules and the ancient rituals, man-centered ways of trying to, to acquire something. He was going to live in and preach the true gospel. The foolish gospel will save you. The foolish gospel will sustain you. It's so counterintuitive. The foolish gospel is the answer to all of your problems, whether you need saving or sanctification. And so Paul later on would say in 2 Corinthians 4.16, So we do not lose heart, 
Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Paul fought discouragement through the power of the gospel. It was the glory of Christ as perceived through the power of the gospel that energized him and motivated him to continue in his journeys. This worldview raises some questions for us. If the starting point in overcoming discouragement is the gospel, the real problem is how do you apply the foolish gospel to your life? Well, let me give you a term here. It's called gospel-motivated obedience. Go back to our initial verse in Psalm 23 that I shared with you. Verse number three. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see, there is a hidden key in this verse as far as overcoming discouragement. And you'll find it in the second sentence. Let me read these two sentences again. He restores my soul. You see, if David had just said he restores my soul and left it off there and said nothing else, then we would be asking the question, what meanest thou this, David? How does he restore our soul? But he he goes on with another sentence. He says he restores my soul. Here's the hidden key. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Gospel-motivated obedience. The secret to overcoming discouragement comes as you follow the paths of right living as God leads you. There has never been a time when I was discouraged that I did not know what path I was to take. All Christians have experienced this. I know that you have experienced this. Let me give you a few illustrations of what I'm talking about. You may not want to forgive, but you know you are to forgive. To forgive someone is to walk down a path of righteousness. You see, there's never been a time like when I was discouraged that I did not know what path to take. There's never been a time in other situations, whether it's like in this case of unforgiveness, and I knew what I should do. And so it really comes down to a choice. Am I so fixated on God and I'm so God-centered that out of that God-centered worldview and ontology that I am going to follow him in this path of obedience? This is how you overcome discouragement. And here's an illustration of of how you walk down a path of righteousness. You may not want to forgive, but you know you are to. Maybe you can't forgive transactionally because no one is asking you to forgive them, but you can forgive attitudinally. Here's another illustration. You may not want to confess your sins, but you know you should confess your sins. A third illustration, you may not want to reconcile but you know you should reconcile. We need to stop playing these games and pretending that we don't know what the right path of righteousness is because we do. If you are a Christian, the Spirit of God illuminates you and gives you marching orders. You have God's Word that gives you guidance as you move down these paths of righteousness. We really can't plead ignorance as Christians. There are things in your life that you know right now that you could do 
And it's your choice as to whether you want to obey and walk out that obedience as you follow the Lord in this path of righteousness, or are you going to continue your self-reliant, man-centered efforts, which will always lead to more and more discouragement? It's not so much that the gospel is foolish, but the gospel is right. The Jews refused to accept the foolish gospel because they didn't want it, and neither did the Greeks. Do you want the gospel And do you want to walk in the ways of the gospel? If you are discouraged, you'll have to make a decision. Will you rely on God who raises the dead? Or will you continue to rely on yourself who lives in a body of death? What path of righteousness is God telling you to walk down for the restoration of your soul? Don't make excuses. If the Spirit of God is pinging you right now, Bill, if you need to do this, if he's pinging you right now, are you going to walk down that path of righteousness or are you going to continue self-reliance? Mabel, what about you? It's your choice. You can continue to walk down your self-reliant path or you can switch to his path of righteousness, which will position you for amazing, empowering grace from the Lord. There is a way that seems right to a man. But the end is the way of death. David said it rather profoundly, and may this be your meditation today. He restores my soul, and here's how. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.